My guest today is Tim Wu. He's a professor at Columbia Law School, where he teaches antitrust, copyright, and communications law. He's here today to discuss his latest book, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust, the, what I do know about antitrust is, is that the experts say, at least some of them say, Bigness isn't bad. It's what big companies do. It's the behavior that is bad. So what is sort of the curse of bigness that you see happening right now in the American economy? That's a, that's a good uh, question. So I think, um, you know, there's such a thing as bigness and then something beyond it, which is uh, bigness, which is bad for the economy and, and bad for the uh, democracy. Um, excessive bigness. If I were going to make my book title more uh Precise would be the curse of excessive bigness, but that's not much of a title. Uh, I, I think when you have too much bigness, you have a tendency for markets to, to be uh, oligopolized or, or monopolized. I think that leads uh, to a number of direction, uh, higher prices, um, lower wages uh, for workers, uh, excessive political influence, and uh, all of which I think uh, ultimately damages uh, the country. Now, I'm not going to deny there's such a thing as economies in scale and so forth, but I think we've uh, become too soft on the idea that uh, you know companies should become as dominant as they like uh, in markets and that we don't need to police this a lot harder, and that's what the book's about. Um, now, sort of the natural thing to think is that this is a book about Amazon and uh, Apple and Facebook and Google. The, those I I would those are are kind of maybe the the main carpets are the biggest the 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 biggest companies by uh, by by market cap they seem to have a lot of influence, but it's 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 really a, a kind of a broader indictment that you that you're laying out in the book. Yeah, I think that um, many people um, have the tech industry front of mind when they hear about giant firms, uh, mainly because they're right in front of our faces. But I think there's industries, frankly, that are a lot worse. Um, I'll mention a couple of them. I think you have severe overconcentration problems in, in, in hospitals around the country. I think the pharmaceutical industry is overconcentrated. I think airlines are overconcentrated, uh, media and cable television. Uh, and a lot of these areas, I think, suffer from lack of competition and uh, weak enforcement of the antitrust laws. And so, you know, tech gets kind of the headlines, but, uh, you know, they're a little bit of a mixed bag. I would uh, save my greatest criticism for some of the other industries, which are less uh, headline prone. All right. Uh, and I, and I want to I get into that, but maybe first take a, uh, a step back to sort of the, the end uh, of the title of your book, The New Gilded Age. Tell us a little a bit about the sort of the original Gilded, Gilded Age and what was going on there with uh, Monopoly. No, thanks for that opportunity. So I think, uh, you know, the features of the first Gilded Age, uh, you know, if you if you watch movies, it seems to just be a lot of big dinner parties and so on. But uh, I, I want to talk about the economic structure. So uh, this was a period where most uh, American markets became monopolized, uh, where, you know, monopoly uh, wasn't a dirty word yet, um, where... Uh, you had basically every industry, uh, steel being an obvious one, U.S. steel, oil, another, standard oil. Standard oil being the one people, uh, most people probably know uh, as maybe the, uh, the, you know, the, most, the most vivid example and probably the one they may have heard about in high school. 
Yeah, and also the the first trust that they were the very first to use this form. So you know, using this uh, form, every uh, industry was monopolized, and um, usually through these huge mergers that uh, would you know make hundreds of companies into to one company. And uh, so that was the economic structure. I think um, there are two other features uh, of that era. Uh, one is you had uh, and, and uh, Jen, what, what period yeah. are we talking about? Like, uh, yeah, like sure. chronologically, we're talking about what the late eighteen hundreds to the early twentieth um, century. Yeah, I'd say like from really the height of it is from the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties through about the twenty tens. Mm-hmm. And the reason that changed the nineteen tens. The nineteen tens. Thanks. Uh, the reason. Uh, the era ends there is because you have an enormous amount of antitrust enforcement. You have a breakup of almost every uh, industry uh, that was monopolized. So that, that's one feature. The other thing I think that is striking about that era, uh, invites some comparison with their own, is you had a new degree of um, wealth uh, inequality and income inequality beyond which uh, and something much greater than anyone had ever seen before. You know, you have the first class of, of extremely wealthy individuals. And um, finally, uh, a turn to much more extreme politics. So, uh, you know, there's always been in the United States, uh, in the United States has always had some kind of extremes. But this was a period where, you know, the Communist Party was a major factor. Socialism was in play. There were anarchist parties. Um I think people in that era really thought there was a possibility there'd be another revolution. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt definitely uh, said he was concerned about that. So uh, it's a kind of extreme period for U.S. politics, a lot of income inequality, a lot of wealth disparity, which uh, in some view makes it a little bit like ours. (laughs) Um, So so the worst impacts during that era— because of you know concentration of economic power in these companies, what was what was sort of the worst impacts that happened because of that? I mean, what how was it hurting the economy? You mentioned inequality, but you know that was also a period of, of pretty good economic growth, and the U.S. sort of you know really leapt forward um, economically. So, what what was sort of the, really the, the bad things that happened? And then maybe you know what good came out of that era. Yeah, no, I think that's worth saying. You know, this is something economic historians uh, dispute. Uh, One thing I think no one could defend is the labor practices of that period. So um, I think this is the first time in American history you start to have people uh, worked really, really hard for for low uh, wages. I mean, obviously of slavery, but that's a different different chapter of history. And, you know, the beginnings of very generalized uh, labor unrest and anger at working conditions. And um, I think that's, uh, you know, hard to defend. Some of the uh, practices of of the employers were, uh, obviously, they illegalized, uh, you didn't allow unions. Uh, Sometimes they would um, hire mercenary armies to to fire on striking workers. So that was, I think, very harmful. And the wages, you know, without collective bargaining, a lot of people weren't making a lot of money. you know, there's an argument there was a lot of growth. I, I think that there's some questions about that, too. Um, some of the industries, after being broken, began to grow more quickly. So there was growth, but uh, arguably some of the monopolies were, were stagnating some some of the growth. Um, some studies of the steel ind- U.S. steel industry suggest the American steel industry was uh, more competitive, more innovate, uh, was more innovative before it became one giant company, U.S. Steel. 
and lost a lot of ground to, to German and other steelmakers. So there's a sort of debate as to whether the industry got too uh, concentrated. There's also historic debate over prices. Um, some monopolists uh, raised prices like monopolists do. There's a literature. Some people thought Standard Oil lowered prices, but oh, I you know it's, the history is debated. But I, I think the greatest harm also was uh, the sense, in the sense of a political harm, which is an increasing number of people felt that they weren't really in charge of the country. And I think that's what actually motivated um, Theodore Roosevelt in particular to, to get involved with the antitrust laws. They just felt that there were growing uh, political sense that the U.S. government was not representative. And if they didn't do something, there was going to be, uh, as I said, some kind of uh, effort at revolution. And so I, I think the political costs were also something to be taken into account. So the uh, so the view of antitrust that held um, after that period, was that then pretty steady all the way up, you know, through the, you know, you know through World War II and then through the 1950s and and 60s and even into the 70s? So was it was there a fairly steady sort of, you know, policy making regime throughout that period? Uh, not really. And that's uh, some of the chapters I actually left out of my book that, mm-hmm. that um, uh, I'll tell you about briefly. So I think it's like the director's cut of the book. Yeah, the director's cut. I have a, a, a chapters. I decided that, you know, I didn't want to I wanted to write a small book about bigness. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm actually going to release the chapters in, in, in the extra chapters. There is a moment in the 30s where the United States begins to flirt seriously with the idea of a state-directed economy, um, not unlike uh, the Italian uh, Mussolini economy at the time, which had its own uh, economic program that everyone thought was a a great success. And during that period, uh, Congress passed legislation that allowed any industry, uh, it's called the uh, National Recovery Act, to submit a code uh, of conduct, which was sort of an implicit way of uh, fixing prices, uh, and therefore get, get an immunity to the antitrust laws. And the thinking at the time uh, went a little like this. People said, well, we're in a depression. The prices are too low. Nobody can make any money. So what we need to do is allow businesses to fix their prices and, and therefore get better prices, and then everything will get going again. Um, it wasn't very successful. Uh, in fact, it, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, raising prices uh, didn't make people buy more stuff. And so um, antitrust kind of came roaring back in the late 30s. And frankly, it reached some of the heights of its enforcement uh, under the, a man named Thurmond Arnold and then later in the 50s. So there was this period, early 30s, where the United States almost gave up entirely on antitrust in favor of more nationalistic uh, solutions. Right. So, that, um, then, But then after that, there, we sort of returned to, the, um, to sort of the idea that you know that big companies kind of were were bad and should be broken up or prevented from merging and getting big to begin with. Yeah, uh, it really reaches its height in the sixties. Um, so after World War II, Congress um, perceives there to be a link uh, between some of the the fascist uh, states and their uh, lack of antitrust laws. And Congress in the nineteen fifty doubled down further on antitrust with the Anti Merger uh, Act passed that year, which created a, a much a stronger ban on uh, anti-competitive mergers. And so by the early 60s, uh, you have 
the Kennedy administration blocking all kinds of mergers, um, undoing mergers, actually relatively uh, small by today's uh, standards, probably wouldn't even be noticed. But uh, that was the most activist period was, frankly, the early 60s. And, and, is, and are you advocating that we return to that period from the sort of the, the, the period we, you know, we've, we've had for the past 30 or, you know, three or four decades, which as long as we, as long as consumers were benefiting, government would take a pretty lenient look toward, uh, toward mergers is, is what you're advocating a return to that period in the sixties when government was very aggressive in, in looking at these sorts of combinations. I think I'm a little more moderate. I think I'm, uh, my ideal antitrust law is some version uh, of the 1910s and the 1950s. So uh, the 60s, they, got, they went too far for me uh, with some of the blocking of mergers that are hard to uh, ha have uh, a reason you think might, might be harmful. But what I like about the 1910s, this is sort of the Wilson, Brandeis, and early Roosevelt period, is they uh, went after monopoly very aggressively and were not afraid of breakups. And what I like about the, the 50s, even the 40s, was the volume um, of, of uh, antitrust uh, litigation made people feel that, you know, that these laws were for real. This is uh, uh, that legacy. Now, uh, things got a little, I'll even admit things got a little too, uh, went too far in, in the 60s. I'll even, I'll even go back to the 90s. Um, there was things to be said about enforcement in the 90s, the, the targeting of Microsoft um, or the 80s, the targeting of AT&T. The, the idea that if you have a monopolist that's there for a long time, you're going to, and, you know, there's credible reports that they're interfering with, with a lot of innovation and growth in the economy, that you're going to uh, do something about that. that. That's what I want back. So, so, where, so where, would you, uh, where would you begin? I mean, we mentioned technology companies earlier, and that's what sort of over the past couple of years have really gotten me a lot more interested in this. Uh, what should we be doing? Or, or if, if anything... Uh, as these companies have have grown bigger and sort of a bigger parts of our our lives, and there's going to be a lot more policy debate about these companies. Um, is that is is that where you would start with these companies? Because it seemed like a lot of people who are very, who are sort of activists, which is, they seem to focus a lot in, on the big technology companies. Is, again, is that where you would start, or some of these other areas which you mentioned briefly before? <laughs> you know, it's a big agenda. Uh, you know, I uh, it's a big agenda. It, it's yeah, it's, a, I, it's I, an economy wide agenda. Yeah. If I could have unlicensed, you know, if I could have freedom to bring any case, uh, any cases I wanted, I would probably start with doubling down in pharmaceutical industry. Although, you know, the, the regulatory mess in that area is, is big as well. But, I, you know, and I, I might uh, I might also break up the airlines. But I, I don't mind talking about tech. I think there's also targets in tech that are important. So all right, so so what so what are okay since uh, you're focusing on it, what, what are the uh, I'm sure the audience is probably most interested in that. Uh, what what are, what, are, what are the what are the problems with these big tech companies? You ever go to a, do you, I don't know if you ever attend concerts or uh, your your friends do, but um, or sporting events. Uh, breaking up uh, Ticketmaster and Live Nation, which you know Ticketmaster is the monopoly ticket vendor, Live Nation is the mon monopoly promoter of events. That is like also a high priority antitrust maneuver. It was this terrible mistake to let them merge. And if you've looked at the prices for concert tickets or the fees charged by Ticketmaster lately, you gotta be like, how did, so, I mean, that one's just so obvious that, that I would be tempted to take it on. 
Um, but yes, people like talking about tech. Uh, I, I personally feel that uh, Facebook, I'm going to single them out, have, has become something of a poster child for the curse of bigness. And I'll say that um, for a couple of reasons. Um, first, I think they uh, have been allowed uh, wrongly to, to buy up their major uh, competitors. Uh, I mean here Instagram and WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. And so therefore reduced real uh, competition in the space. Uh, I think as a consequence of, of not facing direct competition, uh, they've been able to, to get away with a lot more in, 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 private, in terms of privacy protection. They haven't really had a competitor to keep them honest. Uh, they've also uh, been able to absor- you know, become vulnerable, uh, make themselves vulnerable to, to hacking and security violations in terms of, of uh, profit maximization. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that there's nowhere to turn for generalized social networking. It's very hard to leave uh, Facebook, or if you do, you're half the time leaving for Instagram. <laughs> and uh, I-, I think that lack of competitive constraint has led them into all kinds of mischief. And um, the most how recently, many, how many competitors would be enough? Because you know, there's the, obviously there's the argument that. Um, just sort of the natural economic forces. We're probably not going to have, you know, 10, 10 different Facebooks. There's, there's a value to going someplace where everybody else you know or a lot of the people you know are, uh, are on that book and, and we're around that are, are on Facebook or some other uh, social media network. And you can score, and, but you can kind of see that maybe there's one that's more, a little bit more geared toward older people. Maybe there's one geared toward younger people, but are you really going to have multiple competitors and how many, are, how many are enough to provide the sort of competition that you think is necessary? Right. So I think um, more than one is, is, a, big, is a big deal. Um, I think, so this a little bit is contingent. I think we, at a minimum, should break Facebook into three pieces, um, uh, basically by, force, by asking them to give up Instagram and, and WhatsApp. Uh, who they're actually trying to integrate with right now, so that they uh, form some kind of a competitive uh, check. I mean, what's the ideal? It's hard uh, to just sort of sit there and and say what's the ideal. Um, a lot of markets tend to, you know, stabilize at four or five competitors. It's hard to sort of mandate that there be ten competitors in industries. But but if it was like Facebook and Instagram. I mean, I think we'd be having this interview and you'd be talking about the social, you know, the social media, you know, duopoly and, um, you know, or maybe if there were three, the terrible trio, uh, would that, again, so you think if there were like three big and, you know, I guess we're kind of ignoring, uh, Twitter and, uh, Snapchat and whatever sort of smaller new ones that, you know, no one my age knows about, that's not enough. So you, you would, you would, you, you would certainly, if there were, if there was a WhatsApp and an Instagram and a Facebook and all these smaller ones, you would say, yeah, that is now, that is now a competitive market. I'd, I'd say it's imperfectly competitive. <laughs> you know, uh, I think both of us know enough economics to know that it, it's not exactly a time, uh, you know, it's not like hot dog stands in New York or something like that. But, you know, for me, for me, the question is whether you have someone who is a ser- who has the incentives to be a serious check and has something to gain by offering an alternative. Uh, you know, so look at, for example, mobile markets. I'm not going to say the mobile markets are perfect, but at least you have T-Mobile out there and spent some degree saying, hey, listen, we're cheaper 
and we don't do these shitty things like contracts or whatever. So as long as someone has an advantage, and then Verizon's like, yeah, we have a better network. As long as somebody has something to gain by advertising themselves to consumers as somehow being better, I think that's really important. It creates a real pressure. Sure. Now, th- what number exactly is that? It can depend on the, on the network. But I would like there to be a more privacy protective, for example, version of Facebook. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity for a company like that. I just think Facebook has swallowed them all. Um, and also, you, know, you could have a lower ad. You could have a competitor to Facebook that was like, hey, guess what? You pay us a dollar a year or five dollars a year as opposed to there being ads so we're actually serving you and your family as opposed to trying to keep you here as long as possible so you'll see as many ads as possible you know there are some competition and business models right Right. now we've got almost nothing we have some effort to target demographics that facebook's weaker uh you mentioned snap but snap has actually been crippled by facebook over the last two years or so using some uh some of their tactics so uh, that that's what I'm talking about. Here. All right. Well, uh, two, just two things um, pop in my head. One is the is the assumption that I mean we see Instagram, which you know has you know you know a lot of users, very vibrant uh, uh, company, you know part part of the Facebook empire. But would they have gotten that big if not for? I mean, did Facebook bring any value to that proposition? Did they help grow Instagram? So we view Instagram as a potential competitor, but had they not been acquired by Facebook, they might be, you know, they might be more like Twitter, which I assume you don't view as a, as a, as a sort of a meaningful competitor. Right. I don't think Twitter is nothing. I mean, I think that they're not, uh, you know, they serve a different idea. They're like a news, they're basically a blogging site. Um, you know, it's I, I raise like a fight club site, but okay. Right. <laughs> you raise a good point. You know, it's counterfactual uh, history. And I, I, you know, I, I, I hear you. I, I do know that Facebook uh, was, you know, incredibly concerned that Instagram would would displace them, would become their most dangerous competitor. Uh, uh, they were also concerned with, with WhatsApp. Uh, that that's why they paid so much money for them. I also know that Instagram was growing faster than Facebook was at the time. So, uh, you know, I, I don't. It's probably true that uh, Instagram benefited some, uh, but it's also. This sort of cycle of technological history suggests when someone comes up with a product that's new and different and better, often they, they do pretty well on their own. And Instagram had a lot of advantages over Facebook uh, in 2012. Uh, they were stronger on mobile, stronger with young people. Uh, you know, there was every possibility that they were going to do to Facebook what Facebook did to MySpace. Um, they had good, talented leadership, uh, Kevin uh, Seistrom. So, I, you know, I don't know. I, but I, I also don't think we have to answer that question to, to, to break up Facebook as a legal matter. I think the merger was illegal when it happened. Uh, I think the agencies uh, made a serious mistake, the Federal Trade Commission in this case, not blocking that merger. And uh, uh, what I'm advocating is going back to that point and, and recognizing the merger was illegal at the time and breaking it up on that basis. One other thing real fast, you're talking about you know, the different kinds of social media companies, if there are these competitors, they might have, you know, different mid- business models. They might really put privacy at the forefront or they might not had, have an ad driven uh, model. Does it say anything to you that those models aren't emerging, that there maybe is not a huge market demand for those models? Well, I think it's contingent. Um, you know, WhatsApp actually did market itself as more privacy protective than Facebook, but Facebook bottom. And so I think, you know, a lot of it has to do 
with the fact, uh, and so did Snap actually, mm-hmm. that you know Snap sometimes said, "Hey, we don't have a fake news problem like Facebook." But uh, these companies exist in the world where Facebook is there, so we don't know what, uh, the, you know, we don't know what it would look like with with open competition. And often business models only emerge after you break up the, um, uh, you know, they're hiding in the shadow of the monopoly. Uh, if you go back to AT and T uh, and its breakup after the breakup of AT and T, then you start seeing internet service providers starting AOL, CompuServe, and you know they led to more, and then they led to this whole internet economy. You know that that stuff was never going to go anywhere with Bell in charge of everything. Uh, even the case against Microsoft uh, when they made Microsoft back off the the opera not the operating system but the browser and said, you know, uh, you can't just kill everyone in the browser market, take it over and do what you want. You know, then all these businesses came out, they were already there, but the Amazon, Google, and Facebook, they, they were the companies that benefited from Microsoft backing off. So, you know, we've let Facebook have their ride. You know, they've made their money. They, they've been very successful. Um, I just think that it is, there's a very good track record in, in tech of trying to put pressure on the monopolist, break things up a little bit, uh, for providing uh, new new spurts of growth, new uh, moments. And I think that's something we need in tech right now. Well, you were mentioning sort of the technological cycle and you mentioned uh, MySpace. What is, what? Why, why is that technological cycle not going to work this time where these companies will face, whether it's, you know, not to pick on Facebook or whether it's Google or somebody else, whether there won't be new companies that because they have a, a different kind of technology, maybe not doing the exact same thing as Google, but, but a different way to, to find information, uh, why these companies won't be subjected to that kind of pressure and that technological cycle, which has gotten rid of the MySpaces and the Nokias in the past. Um, you know, one of my one of my favorite examples, and I'm sure you, you know this one well, I think it was a cover of Business Week magazine. There was a, a big article on Yahoo. It's, you know, Yahoo is Yahoo has won the browser wars. Yeah. Um, didn't really work out that way. So why do you think that's technological cycle, uh, which has brought these supposed dominant forever kinds of companies that which has brought them down will no longer work? That why, wh- that has been interrupted. That's a good that's a good question. So I, I think there was a period um, uh, where you, you did see the. Um, uh, every, every company subject uh, to new threats every you know five years or so, and you know Netscape was big. Well, they were destroyed by Microsoft, but AOL was big. Then they went down. Yahoo went up and down. There was this kind of formative period of of about fifteen uh, years uh, where, f- frankly, I think no one was was safe. But I think the longer history of the technological markets tends to suggest that uh, after a while, companies get better. At entrenching themselves, and one thing that you know hasn't, well, I think we've seen um, over the last ten years or so, uh, a, a, a series of companies emerge. You know who they are: Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, maybe Microsoft uh, residually there. Uh, but in these main, uh, you've seen a number of companies go after them, try to sort of repeat the, the story that was the narrative, and end up with completely different results i.e. Um, limited market share, uh, an early death, or other reasons, which suggests to me that um, the barriers to entry have, have certainly gotten larger. Um, now, it doesn't mean but, but that... They're entren- are they entrenching them? But they're entr- are they entrenching? They're not entrenching themselves um, to the extent they are. And they cer- I mean, they, these companies, to me, they certainly act like, you know, they are, they're, they are just one 
new company or one sort of innovation somewhere else to the whole thing coming tumbling down that they act very scared and like they're under pressure. It's a sort of, you know, be paranoid, be, you know, Andy Grove paranoid thing. They're certainly acting very paranoid, like their market positions are, are, are no sense guaranteed. And to the extent they're entrenched, they're not, they're not, you know, lob, they're not getting some special tax break or regular regulation to keep them entrenched. It's because they're just, really, really good at what they do and providing, I mean, consumers seem to like, you know, what they're getting from Google and Amazon. So, so does that make a difference that that's, that's why they're dominant versus doing something underhanded and nefarious? You know, it's, it's always a, uh, I think it's in most stories, the answer is both, uh, you know, that uh, companies, some companies can have a terrible product, survive forever. Usually they have some kind of support of the state. Um, you know, and some kind of protection from the market. But for most companies, it's complicated. I think that right now, trying to start a search engine against uh, Google or, or a, um, a social, straight up social network against Facebook is most, I think you went to Silicon Valley, you could not get any funding for that right now. The most people think it's suicide, that their scale advantages, their data, their, their data advantages are so much uh, that that part of the cycle has stopped. Now, I'm not saying, I, I'm, I have this view, is I, I think the market and antitrust law need to work together. Um, you know, I would love, uh, in fact, if, if in fact a serious Facebook challenger took down Facebook, I would stop calling for antitrust action. It's just when you become suspicious that uh, the, mark, the barriers have gotten strong enough that a company could survive, then you need to think, well, maybe we need to have antitrust law loosen up, get things moving, uh, and uh, provide for the the market cycle to take it take its place. Now, I, I, you know, because eventually it will happen, but we we can't wait for fifty years. It's also possible that uh, history would suggest that a company like Facebook and perhaps Amazon uh, will soon try to get government on their side to defend themselves against competition. And I don't know what it will look like, but maybe Facebook agrees to some kind of privacy law, which for some reason is very hard for new entrants to to uh, to to adhere to, or, you know, they, they may, uh, Amazon may try and instantiate itself as basically the national e-commerce um, monopolist, kind of like a bell-regulated monopoly. That's the next natural step, uh, especially as it start to become less competitive. And so before that happens, I think uh, we give the antitrust law its turn. I'm, I'm offering antitrust here as an alternative to, to basically the regulated monopoly model, which is where I, I suspect we will start going next. So, if you're, if you're, if you think we're sort of at, at at that point, I mean, Google just came out as we're recording this. Google, Google just came out with their earnings, and you know, I'm I'm impressed by the fact, and maybe you should say, don't be impressed by that, but I am sort of impressed by the fact. But boy, they are spending so much money on research and development. I guess when I think of a kind of a fat and happy monopoly where no one can challenge them. I guess I wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't expect to see you know this amazing chart showing how much they're, how much they're spending uh, on, on research and, and investment. Does that does that at all sway you that perhaps you know maybe we should just let you know Google play out for a while before we think about you know you know taking away YouTube or or, or something else? You know, it's a great question um, because it does come down to enforcement policy. And whether there is um, a difference between what Theodore Roosevelt called the difference between basically the good trust and the bad trust. And so, you know, Roosevelt 
Bolt's idea for enforcement was like, well, you know, if they're doing, if they have a, got a monopoly going, but they're basically doing good things, then you know, give them give them some time. While if they're uh, if they are running a monopoly and all they're doing is raising prices, you know, buying islands for the founder, um, uh, you know, sponsoring. You know where I'm going with this a little bit. Mm. Sp- <laughs> sponsoring sailing races um, and uh, screwing their customers and destroying their competitors. Well, you know, that's the guy you go after. But, that, so but, that's, not, but that's not those technology companies. I mean, they do. People love the products. There's surveys that say oh, no, they would pay to. You. I know, but that doesn't sound like big tech at all. Uh, I was talking about Oracle, actually. Right, but it, but it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like you know it doesn't sound like you know that doesn't sound like Apple and Google and Amazon, does it? Right, that that's what I guess I'm yeah. I'm saying is that I so don't maybe think should, should we wait? I don't think it's crazy. Um, you know, some of my allies would, would disagree on this, but I do think uh, without stating any sort of permanent thing. I mean, it depends what they did, right? And people disagree about their track records, but I actually am one of the people who believe that. Whether we should break up a, a monopoly has a lot to do with how long they've had it and how they're behaving. And, you know, there's people who say that all that, you know, what Google is doing is, in fact, uh, destroying their competitors and um, pushing everybody out of the market. So there's some people who say that. Uh, as you say, I think things like spending on R&D should matter. Um, things like uh, how they treat um customers, whether consumers seem to like them, should matter. I think all that actually should go into enforcement policy. And maybe this is why I put Facebook at the top of my list mm-hmm. and why you're omitting them in the list. Oh, of- no, but, but you feel that's the clearest case of someone who's been who's a, uh, who's a been a bad actor. Yes, that's right. Among right. the big tech companies. Right. right. Um, yeah. I mean, that's why I, you know, I started this by saying I'm also pretty hard on the pharmaceutical industry, airline industry, uh, other industries, which I think are just more straightforwardly not really doing much. But actually, taking us backwards, uh, you know, airline industry. It's not like airline travel's gotten better. In fact, it's gotten worse, and you know, prices haven't gone down much, and the seats just keep getting smaller. And I don't know. Uh, it's sort of a great example of, of oligopoly uh, gone amok. Um, and I, and I've I've sort of skirted skirted around it. I haven't really mentioned it. Is that and I haven't used the phrase the cons- maybe I did the consumer welfare standard, which is sort of what has dominated you know, antitrust, uh, you know, thinking for decades, how much progress do you think you and sir, I know, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, antitrust activists have made in changing or beginning to change that, that, that view, which has dominated, um, antitrust law since, uh, Robert Bork. Yeah, I think we're making progress. Um, I think that, uh, the experience of the 1910s, uh, even among some hardcore economists, have made people look back and be like, how did we let some of this stuff happen? Um, you know, why do we let Facebook buy their competitors? Why do we let the airlines merge down to three? Uh, how do we let pharma get away with all the stuff? Um, and there's others. If you're an antitrust person, there's like a huge list of them. And so I think mainstream economists and also macroeconomists who have always been wondering what micro people are doing have started to seriously doubt consumer welfare. One of the things they say is they're like, you know, the real version of consumer welfare is not too bad, but what, what has been implemented in the courts uh, and, and in the agencies is something that just uh, creates an almost impossible burden uh, for the government. So they can't really stop anti-competitive mergers. It's this huge uh, burden they have. And, you know, take a guy, I don't know, you know, Carl Shapiro at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 
sometimes it seems like it's a rigged game. He he thought he demonstrated clearly that the AT and T uh, Time Warner merger was going to be anti-competitive, and the judge still threw out the case. And so sometimes it feels like a shell game. So yes, I think in the broad middle, um, and you know things have to start from one side in order the broad middle. People have started to wonder what's going on here. I also think the there's signs on, on in the Republican Party that uh, you know it's not necessarily expressed with high economic theory, but in terms of economic populism, there's a lot of people in the Republican Party, some of them uh, Trump voters, who also just feel like what exactly is going on with this uh, oligopoly, monopoly-dominated economy, and is it really working for you know the great uh, majority of Americans? So I just sort of finish finish up. You know, you, you've mentioned a, a number of sectors. We may have dug a little bit deeper into uh, tech, but there you've pointed to a number of sectors where you feel there's a problem. To be, yeah. are you talking about a? I mean, how big does the Justice Department and the FTC? How big do they need to be to go after all these areas in the uh, in the economy? It sounds like it would be a lot. Well, you know, uh, big things have small beginnings. In the 40s, the Justice Department under, I mentioned Thurman Arnold a few times. He was mm-hmm. the head of the antitrust division then. Uh, you know, they brought hundreds of cases. Um, now, maybe litigation was less expensive back then. Um, I don't know. But we're at a tiny fraction of what we could be doing in these areas. And, you know, having worked in antitrust enforcement myself in two different agencies, I got to say they spend a lot more time thinking than they do lawyering, um, partially because everyone these standards are so impossible. Mer- the easiest place to start is merger review. You know, every merger that's any size be examined. And I just think that this country needs to really reform the way it allows merger review to happen. I, I think everyone thinks they can get away with anything in merger review. And it's uh, it has really hurt a, a lot of industries and hurt a lot of consumers and a lot of workers. And uh, that that's the place I'd start. My guest today has been Tim Wu. Tim, thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure.